Blog Talk Radio. Well, let's try it again. date the, the date of day of crucifixion 
and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I get right to the point. The day of crucifixion, when you convert it to our pagan Gregorian calendar, it's April 3rd, and the year is 33 A.D. And reckoning, uh, counting the, the days as the Jews would have counted days, you know, Friday, the day of crucifixion, would have been a um, day one in the grave, day two, the full 24 hours of Saturday, the second day. And then uh, early in the morning on the third day, uh, Scripture says, you know, it, probably the resurrection took place before sunrise. But we know that the, the women got to the tomb and, you know, as as, as morning was, was occurring, and they found that the stone had been rolled away and the tomb was empty. Praise God for that. And so what I what I wanted to do this year was try to um, oh I have a whole bunch of uh, literature here uh, that I've gone through and I've tried to condense it as best I can and um, that hopefully will, will explain why I believe and many are starting to see this and if you are a, a Christian brother or sister I'm going to ask you to consider this that tomorrow. April 3rd, okay, is a day of crucifixion, okay? And so tomorrow we should remember from the hours of 9 o'clock, you know, of course, you know, Judean time, you know, we can, I don't, it would be early, almost in the earliest morning hours, so even at night when Jesus was on the cross. But sometime tomorrow, uh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, let's find some time to reflect not so much on the physical torment, but on the, the the reason why, as a as the ultimate sacrifice for the the rebellious sin nature of humanity. And to understand, and I I've got news articles that I'd I'd like to share, but I really don't want to waste the, the time. You you can do your 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 prophetic news research as well as I can. To understand why uh, we can date the crucifixion to April 3rd, all right? You, you literally have to do some, some digging, and when, when you do so, you, you have to go way back, and, and as I began my journey, uh, way back into the uh, pretty much the late 1600s, uh, there was a famous mathematician. His name was Johann Kepler. Now, Kepler was German, and he, was, uh, he, he grew up pretty much in Austria. He was perhaps the most brilliant mathematical teacher of his time. But because of his uh, rebellious attitude, uh, I don't want to use that word, is really his, his correct attitude about, uh, you know, the, the growing uh, rise of Protestantism, uh, you know, versus the traditional Roman Catholic theology, he was uh, uh, banished from uh, the uh, University of Graz in Austria, you know, by the Catholic Church. Ultimately, he um, is invited to go to Prague, uh, and he is joins there as a, a student, if you want to call that. Actually, it was a, it was a co-researcher, Tycho Brahe, and um, Brahe, you know, older man, uh, was also a brilliant mathematician. One of the funny things about Brahe, I used to teach my kids this, you know, when I was teaching astronomy, was that you know he, he had his nose cut off in a duel, a sword whacked him off, and so he had an uh, artificial nose made that he wore his whole life. Anyway, that's just kind of for fun. Um, 
Brahe died in, I think it's 1600, maybe 1601, and Kepler, you know, assumed the position of the, what we would you know call today, what's going to be known then as the imperial mathematician. Now, having said all that, that's just minor background details. Kepler believed that, it, that Galileo was correct a few years earlier, that the planets orbited around the sun. But he believed that they orbited in a circular motion, a true, perfect, because he believed in the perfection of God. And, but try as he might, he could not find, uh, the, the planets defied a circular orbit based on the mathematics, uh, you know, that he had, primitive telescope that he had. His, his corrections, his, excuse me, his calculations were indeed correct. And soon, uh, by early, six, I think it was 16... 1610, uh, he published uh, uh, two uh, uh, a very intriguing work um, called the law, first and second laws of planetary motion, and in the around 1620 he published his third law of planetary motion. Uh, now, what's the big deals of this? These laws, these mathematical formulas that uh, Johann Kepler perfected uh, in the early 1600s. They're still used today by NASA, by the European Space Agency. In other words, um, it's how we it's how we calculate the positions of stars, planets. How we uh, plug that mathematical formula in so that we can launch satellites or projectiles or whatever to far-reaching planets and make sure that they arrive. You know that that our satellite or observatories, whatever. Um, match up exactly, you know, with, with the planet, you know, so they don't miss. Uh, Kepler was a very religious man, and once he was able to work out the elliptical orbits of the planets and was able to calculate their speed, uh, Kepler had but one idea. He wanted to find the exact uh, birthday uh, of, of Jesus Christ. In order to do so, he needed to find what... Matthew records as the star of Bethlehem. But unfortunately, Kepler was working from, from flawed data, okay? A mistake had been made. Now, basically, here's what happened. The, uh, the majority of ancient, you want to call them as chronographers, believe that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, was born in 3 or 2 B.C. And none, no one really at that time believed that Jesus was born before 4 B.C. Now, these guys, these ancients were correct. But, and, and, but by Kepler's day, uh, the, the earlier and better understanding had been somewhat forgotten. Now, Kepler and his contemporaries concluded, as even as someday modern historians have, that Christ was born sometime before 4 B.C., sometime between 4 and 6 B.C. Now, the significance of that is very, very, very important to, to dating the day of crucifixion. One of the uh, most famous Jewish historians, Flavius Josephus, who lived in 30, he was born approximately 37 A.D. and he died around 95 A.D. Okay, uh, Josephus was a Pharisee. He became very politically uh, prominent in Judea. Uh, he was involved in the the uh, last uh, uh, revolution against the Roman occupation. We know that the temple is going to be destroyed in uh, 70 A.D., and uh, Flavius Josephus was, was a soldier in this rebellion, 
and uh, he was wound up taken prisoner. I believe that was correct. Um, but some during his imprisonment, uh, he somehow be, was befriended by a uh, uh, the leader of, a, of, of the Roman expedition, uh, Vespasian, uh, who was, I believe, yeah, I'm correct on this, the Roman commander uh, uh, or the expeditionary force in Judea. Um, and then ultimately he became a soldier in the Roman war effort against his own Jewish people. Now, having said all that, um, he, he served as an interpreter for Titus, and Titus, of course, had the orders to besiege Jerusalem and destroy the Jewish temple. This he did uh, in the fulfillment of a 500-year-old vision recorded by, by uh, Daniel. Now, having said that, now, uh, because of his apparent traitor, uh, where he fought against the Jews, uh, he could not live in uh, Judea, so basically he left that particular area. But nonetheless, uh, he wrote, he was a prolific writer, and in his books he mentions Jesus, John the Baptist, other New Testament characters, including the murderous uh, King Herod of the Gospel of Matthew. All right? Now, now, the Bible recounts that Herod learned of Messiah's birth from astronomers. Now, when I'm talking about astronomers, I flatly deny the ability of astrology. Astrology is sinful. You can check it out in Scripture. We are not to believe that the stars influence our life in any way, shape, or form. But all through the Old Testament, and even Paul tells us that we can look at the, the stars in a night sky for signs. John the Revelator, chapter 12, gives us you know the beautiful picture you know, of the woman in Revelation 12. Now, now here's where things are important. Now, that we, we know that Herod tried to kill Jesus, and so the Bible obviously records that Herod was alive at Jesus' birth. Now, remember, this mattered back to Kepler, because historians of his time apparently inferred from Josephus' history that Herod had died in 4 B.C. That was a mistake. Somehow, someway, in the transcribing of Flavius, uh, Joseph, Flavius Josephus' works, a mistake had made. And the earliest manuscripts are correct, okay, when Herod died. But a mistake, a uh, simple uh, transpo transposition or transposing a number from one to four, okay, who knows what happened. Throws things off, all right? Now, perhaps, uh, uh, you know, we know that by in the 1400s, early 1500s, you know, typesetting had uh, occurred. So perhaps a, a printer typesetting the manuscript, a uh, uh, printer uh, who was sending the typesetting of the manuscript of Josephus messed up the year, um, okay? And because every single uh, Josephus manuscript in these libraries dating before 1544 has hair passing away in 1 B.C. And then every copy of Josephus from 1544 on has hair dying in 4 B.C. So it's a simple mistake. Now, knowing this, okay, since hair died shortly after Christ's birth, it's important then to pay attention to this guy, okay, you, get, you trust me on this, of, th of basically 3 B.C. and 2 B.C. Now, 
you can get on the internet and, and, and you can do the uh, re Google research if you want to call it that. Uh, the power of computers today are far, far uh, faster than the laborious hand calculations that Kepler had to use or Newton had to use and others like this. But Kepler's laws of planetary motions are correct. All right. Now, uh, if you want to invest a few dollars in your education, one of the one of my favorite all-time DVDs or one of my all-time favorite presentations that is uh, that I have uh, I find it extremely beneficial to every Christian should watch this. It, it's getting a little dated now. I don't know when it was actually first produced. I just don't remember. Probably uh, ten years ago. Uh, it's called The Star of Bethlehem. Uh, it was produced by Stephen McEvey, uh, who did The Passion of Christ. And it's it's the work of um, a gentleman by the name of Rick Larson down in Texas and how he spent years, literally probably ten years or more, researching what the star of Bethlehem was and finding it. So much of my commentary tonight is really based, you know, on his work. Now, so what we have is this. The, the, the stars, the celestial clockwork that God established at the moment of creation gives us the day and even probably to the hour, the time of the crucifixion and the resurrection. So even if you're not a traditional Christian or Jewish faith, you might feel it's somewhat uneasy searching for signs in the stars. But remember, uh, many people, you know, have concluded there isn't anything wrong with astrology, yet I'm telling you, it is. It's sinful. All right? Uh, Job 31, 26, 28, If I have regarded the sun in its radiance or moon moving in its splendor so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then these would also be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. Now, that's Job 31, 26, 28. Now, um, in the Old Testament, if you research it out farther, even decrees the death penalty for those who are engaged in astrology, which is the form of divination. It's an evil spirit attached to it. Now, still, the Bible does make surprising numbers of references, okay, to the motions, the activity, or to the signs in the heavens. Both Old and New Testament assume that what happens up there matters, and that's important. So if we're interested in following the counsel of the Bible, you must hold that distinction in your mind. Astrology assumes that the stars causes earthly events. That's sinful. But the Bible assumes that, they can, that God uses the stars to give us messages about earthly events. And it does. Now, um, anyway. Now, scholars you know, believe that Job is the oldest biblical text. You know, originating before the time of Abraham, uh, he was the founder of the Jewish nation. So it's interesting then, I, I believe, that this oldest book speaks of stars and constellation with respects. It states that God set them in place. And it even references the same constellations, at least some of them, that we know today. Okay? He is the maker of the bear, Ursa Major, and Orion, the Pleiades, and the constellations of the south, Job 9 9. And in Job chapter uh, 38, um, Boy, God makes a uh, 
powerful statement here. I spent a long time researching this. I'm not going to get into it tonight, though. Uh, Job 38, 31, 32. Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? And verse 32, wow. Can you bring forth the constellations in their season? Now, some translations will use that word Maseroth there. Find out what the Maseroth is, and, and you'll be amazed. Um, uh, Book of Isaiah, chapter 40. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He brings out the starry host by one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Now, several passages, uh, you know, uh, about this were written by David, you know, uh, the son of Jesse, you know, King David. You know, David is a powerful biblical figure, a fierce warrior, a revered king, you know, one of the the king in the lineage of Jesus Christ, right? Now, Psalm 19, where David extols God's handiwork, this is a powerful one, okay? And trust me, you'll, you'll see where I'm going with this on the date of the crucifixion. You know, David, King David, you know, basically declares the glory of God through the handiwork of the stars. But he also tells us, you know, that the stars bear a message. Now, Psalm 19, verses 1 to 4, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Boy, I'd like to spend an hour on that. That's just just powerful here. But David chooses, you know, Hebraic verbs that says that the stars communicate. That's intriguing. It isn't just poetry. Okay, it isn't David speaking with, you know, uh, allegory or hyperbole. He's speaking simple truth. Now, if you think I'm wrong, then you're also saying that Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, is also wrong. In the book of Romans, chapter 10, Paul quotes this same psalm. Okay? Now, you know, he's addressing Paul, you know, he's addressing the questions, had the Jews of Christ's day heard that the Messiah had come? And he answers the question by saying, of course they had heard it. Now, this is deep, and I don't want to go down this road tonight, but you have to think it through. He then quotes David to make the point. He goes on to say in Romans ten seventeen, okay? Consequently, faith comes by hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ, okay? But I ask, did they, that means the Jews, not hear? Of course they did. Now, listen to what Paul says. Their voice has gone out into all the earth. There are words to the ends of the world. Hmm. Night after day after day, they. Whoops. No, so I was just going to go back and say it again. Uh, uh, Paul. Paul is taking the position that something has happened in the stars, which indicated to the Jews that Messiah had come. Now. Another witness. Scripture says we always need two or three witnesses. Well, we're going to find Peter. And another witness, you know, Joel. The Apostle Peter elsewhere makes this same argument. Trust me, it's an act. Right? Now, this argument, you know, this argument has exactly no force unless something had happened in the stars. All right? 
The fact that both men employed this line of reasoning is very significant and shows that they are making the same assumption. Remember, they are Second Temple Jews. They knew Jesus Christ. Their, their, their mindset, their way of thinking, their logical um, uh, plans with respect to interpreting languages is not the same as a Western mindset. That I, I've said many times on this show over the years. You know, it's very difficult for us to think like a Second Temple Jewish person. Now, so the fact, again, that both men thought this way or had the same line of reasoning showed his teaching me, hopefully teaching you, they're making the same assumption. They assumed that their listeners, those who would re- read their, their letters, those who would hear their voices, were also aware of the heavenly phenomena associated with Christ. Now, when we follow this same line of logic, it takes us to the day of the cross. It takes us, proves to us that it occurred on April 3rd when it's converted to our calendar. Now, for those, you know, uh, who love the Bible like I do, you know, we've probably seen enough to, you know, to, to set it. We're not looking. What I'm trying to say is we're not looking for something in the Bible contempt, condemns. But then let's go to look. Let's look. Yeah, let's go to Luke chapter 21. Now Luke is quoting someone. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and stars. In essence, he's kind of uh, paraphrasing here. So it's biblically legitimate to look for these signs. Okay. Now go. Let's let's double check this out here. Deuteronomy chapter four. Verse 19, when you look up to the sky and see the sun, <coughs> the moon, and the stars, all the hell of it, heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things that the Lord your God has appointed to all nations under heaven. We know from history, many times, you know, the Jewish nation ignored this warning. Rather than looking to the stars for signs, you know, they slipped over, they crossed the line, they, they, they disobeyed God and began to be influenced by the the pagan cultures in that area, and they began to believe that the stars influenced human affairs. They began to worship the created things instead of the creator. You know, in the second books of Kings, chapter 23, we find King Joash leading a revival of spirituality, you know, among the Jews, and a return to the worship of God alone. You know, one of the things that Joash had to do was destroy, get rid of all the astrological objects which had been brought into the temple itself, Second Kings 23.4. So Josiah ordered Hilkiah, the high priest, the priest next in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple all the articles made for, in quotes, skipping here a little bit, all the starry host. He burned them. He destroyed them outside of Jerusalem. Now, the bottom line, then, is this. We may look to the stars for signs from God, but we are not to revere the stars itself. Okay? Now, that's important. Now, knowing this, knowing this, there's more in the sky which declares Messiah has come. But to see these things, you've got to know when to look up. Now, Peter used the sky, I believe, as proof that Messiah had come. So did Paul. But which sky did he use? Now, a body of scholarly works, you know, uh, and there's there's multiple ones out there, and many of them point to the same date, not all. 
But I'm going to prove to you why once and for all we can settle this, that tomorrow is the day of crucifixion. You know, uh, together with Roman and Jewish histories, archaeoastronomy and the words of the Bible, I believe, and, I, and I'm not the only one, I'm not unique to this, there are hundreds if not thousands of other biblical scholars believe this, allow us to identify the day and almost the moment of the death. Now, this is an extraordinary claim, but you've got to consider the evidence. Now, you've got to understand something. The Gregorian calendar we use and the Jewish calendar we, we should be using, you know, have to be converted. And the Jewish calendar is very complex. It would take me a long time, you know, to explain it to you. I've got a whole book over here on my shelf here about, you know, how to interpret the Jewish calendar. But let's, let's kind of put this together like pieces of a puzzle. You know, by law and custom, the Jewish people of Jesus' day took Sabbath as a complete day of rest. God rested on the seventh day, all right? And I've, I've shared, you know, I believe on this show, I know I've, in some of my sermons that I've preached, you know, for years, I did not like to rest on Sunday. I'd go to church, you know, I was communing with the Lord very deeply, but I would come home from church, have a nice meal with my family, and then I had to get busy. I had to do something. I had to be physically laborious or I was not happy. I thought the day was wasted. And I realized that's that's wrong. It is set aside biblically as a day of rest. I still struggle with that a little bit, but I, I know, maybe I'll make this through. Now, here's why. Because no work would be done on the Sabbath day which we call, which today we call Saturday. Uh, Friday, you know, became to be known, you know, by a slang word, and instead of day five. Okay, it was known as preparation day. The Jews never had days names for the days of the week. It was day one, day two, day three, four, five, six, seven. You get the idea. With the seventh day being the Sabbath. Now, so this preparation day was a day when you prepared. You got everything ready for the Sabbath so that you, you know, went to synagogue, you came home, uh, all the food was prepared, you know, and then you just had enjoyed a day of rest with your family and friends, I'm sure. Now, all four Gospels in a state that Jesus was crucified on Preparation Day, which is a Friday. Because remember, Sabbath is a Saturday. Now, this is also, uh, you know, as, as I read my books about the earliest church fathers in the first you know, two, three centuries. You know, this this was a common uh, belief. Now, the Gospels also record that the crucifixion occurred the day before the Passover festival. This is important. This is really our second major clue as to the day when Jesus was crucified. Now, okay, it had preparation day had to be a Friday. Now, Passover is important because it gives us a solid connection, I think, with the ancient Jewish calendar system. Passover always begins on the 14th day of the Jew Jewish lunar month of Nisan. Nisan 14th is in the spring, which is why Easter is celebrated then. Okay, again, I have to use that word to appease several of you, I guess. But by Judean or Jewish tradition, Passover begins at twilight, the dividing line between Nisan 14th and 15th. Okay, when the sun goes down, the day ends. On the Jewish calendar, and on ours, really, a numbered day of the month may fall on any day of the week. For example, uh, you know, my birthday, you know, I think last year fell on a Tuesday, but I think next year's going to be, this year's going to be on Thursday. Um, now, this floating of days, 
is why the second clue is so powerful. Now, if you think about it, if you put these two biblical pieces together, you can see that, that the crucifixion must, must, must have occurred in a year when Nisan 14th happened to fall on a Friday or the preparation day. Now, okay? So that's why we, you know, you know, that's where Friday comes in. Now, here's where we have to go, working our way back to uh, our, our uh, early uh, astronomy, I can't, my brain start, our, our friends in astronomy, all right? We'll get there in just a few minutes. Um, we know that uh, Pontius Pilate was the Roman um, procurator of Judea based on Jewish and Roman history from 26 A.D. to 36 A.D. Now, this limits, uh, begins to limit our, our date range. Now, now if we can work with this assumption, and I believe it's fact, that the conception of Jesus occurred in 3 B.C., and he was born in most likely June of 2 B.C., there's also some important biblical clues in the book of Luke that records that Jesus begins his public ministry when he was about 30 years old. Now, the book of John records three annual Passovers during Jesus' ministry, and taken together, these puzzle pieces, if you want to call them that, add to a crucifixion date in the early 30s, or in the early 30s A.D., all right, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, something like that. Now, this is the key part. All right. Again, using the conversion of converting the Hebraic calendar to the Gregorian calendar, and that's difficult to do, but it's not impossible. We find that during those years, the early 30s A.D., Nisan the 14th fell on a Friday, preparation day, twice. It was either on April 7th of 30 A.D., and then it, and, and it happened again on April 3rd of 33 A.D. Now, so what we have to do is go back to, into history to find out which one of those is correct. Now, this, is, this, this next clue um, was kind of hard to dig out, and, and I had some help digging it out. I, I had a number of books and, and uh some uh, uh, YouTube videos and, and stuff like that, and I was able to get to get some things like that. But again, I, I'm very thankful, very very thankful to the work of Rick Larson, who produced the, uh, who wrote the Star of Bethlehem DVD. If you've never watched it, buy it. You will be impressed. Uh, now we've got to take a look a little bit at, at Roman history, because remember, the Romans were in control of Judea. Uh, by the time Tiberius Caesar, who lived from 42 B.C. up to about 37 A.D., reached his, his mid-60s, he, stories go that he really was tired of being the emperor. And so he, he semi-retired to the island of Capri, and his, history says in 26 A.D., 
he's still out of the public eye, but he embraced on a life of, uh, let's say, let's say he was depraved, and uh, still even for a degraded and absentee emperor, there he still had the problems of government. Now, this is where this just trust me, I'm going to be reading a lot of some history books here, so just just listen close, and you'll see how it works. It's beautiful. He had a um, personal assistant. Uh, he was the manager of Rome. He basically conducted the emperor's uh, official business, okay? And uh, we would have called him a regent. He lived in Rome. Uh, he communicated frequently with Tiberius Caesar, but yet he also had a lot of ambition, so many of the policies he did on his own. His name was, uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing this correct, Elias Sejanus. Uh, he was the, had been captain of the Praetorian Guard, and Sejanus had shown himself to be you know, very politically capable, uh, loyal to, to Tiberius Caesar, and, but yet he was a very ruthless man. Now, he occupied this position for about five years, I believe, that he administered an empire, and um, he was very uh, tyrannical. tyrannical. Uh, he, he publicly executed any and all enemies, all right? And uh, he was going to be, you know, the most logical successor to Tiberius. Now, I'm reading here a little bit. As chronicled extensively by the Roman senator and historian uh, Publius Cornelius Tactus, Sejanus apparently expected that he might one day plot and murder his way to the throne, and he very nearly did. Unfortunately for Sejanus, Tiberius had a trusted sister-in-law, Antonia, and she was not a political player, which gave her options of, of, uh, gave her options a certain weight. While nearly all communicated communication from Rome filtered through Sejanus, Antonia managed to place a secret letter before Tiberius in which she described Sejanus's web of plots in convincing detail. Still reading here, one more paragraph. Tiberius responded by plotting his own, to his own surprise. He sent an emissary with a lengthy letter to be read before the Roman Senate with Sejanus present. In the turnabout ending of the missive, Tiberius loosened a scathing denunciation of Sejanus and demanded his arrest. The shocked mastermind was dragged out and executed the same day, October 18, 31 A.D. Now, big deal. Now, because Roman and biblical history often are contemporaneous, they often meet or in intersect with each other, Here's, here's what we're get, getting to. Sejanus, in his glory days, influenced and then made him, made, uh, he first influenced, obviously, Tiberius Caesar, and he rose to power, and this powerment allowed him to appoint imperial officials or procurators to the various provinces of Rome. One of those was a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate. Pilate was made prefect of Judea, okay, about that time that Tiberius, you know, left Rome for the island of Capri. Now, Sejanus, we know, was anti-Jewish, and Pilate followed his benefactor, if you want to call it that, his anti-Jewish policies as he governed Judea, all right? One of the things that, uh, that uh, uh, Pilate uh, 
thought he would have fun with, if you want to think of it that way, with the Jews. It's, you know, the Jews did not want to have any statues anywhere in the city, particularly in the temple. And we know that they, you know, of course, they're following the commandments of God in Exodus 20. Thou shalt not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth. Beneath or in the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. Uh, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, that's one of the commandments. We know that. Now, this is an excerpt I want to read here uh, from Josephus, written by Josephus, Wars, Book 2, Chapter 9. Now, Pilate, who was sent as a procurator into Judea by Tiberius, okay, he really wasn't, you know, it was, it was, it was he was sent here by, you know, Tiberius' uh, second-in-command, all right, that's Sejanus. Um, sent by night uh, those images of Caesar that are, that are called ensigns into Jerusalem. This excited a very great tumult among the Jews when it was day. For those that were near them were astonished at the sight of them as indications that their laws were trodden underfoot. For those laws do not permit any sort of image to be brought in the city. Nay, besides the indignation which the citizens had themselves at this procedure, a vast number of people came running out of the country. These came zealously to Pilate to Caesarea and besought him to carry those ensigns out of Jerusalem and to preserve them and to and to preserve them their ancient laws inviolable. But upon Pilate's denial of the request they fell down prostrate upon the ground and continued immovable in that posture for five days and as many nights. On the next day, Pilate sat upon his tribunal in the open marketplace and called to him the multitude as desirous to give them an answer. And they gave, then gave a signal to the soldiers that they should all by agreement at once encompass the Jews with their weapons. So the band of soldiers stood around the Jews in three ranks. The Jews that were under the most utmost consternation at that unexpected sight Pilate also said to them that they should be cut into pieces unless they would emit Caesar's images and give intimation to the soldiers to draw their naked swords. Hereupon the Jews, as it were, at one signal, fell down in vast numbers together and exposed their necks bare, and they cried out that they were sooner ready to be slain than their law should be transgressed. Now that's from Josephus, Wars of the Jews, Book 2. Now, Others, you know, there's many other examples of Pilate's intentional mistreatment of the Jews. You know, um, Philo, again, a writer from this era, reports that Pilate was also proposed to set up a colossal idol in the Holy of Holies itself. And Josephus reports that Pilate sees religious offerings made by worshiping Jews to pay for Roman work projects. The book of Luke tells us that Pilate killed Jewish worshipers, mingling his victims' blood with that of their religious sacrifices, which is a hideous uh, desecration. And at the crucifixion, Pilate posted a notice of Christ on Christ's cross, which declared him the king of the Jews, thereby mocking the Jewish leadership, even as he gave in to their demands. Now, but all this simply raises a question about the execution of Jesus. You know, Pilate's pattern from other sources suggests you know, he would try to do avoid doing anything which could be, which the Jews would clamor against. He didn't want that, all right? So why would he now give in to this non-political uprising of the Jews against the, uh, Jesus Christ? Why not release Jesus if not, if only to irritate the priests 
who called for his death. Now, that's what Pilate logically should have done. He liked to irritate the Jewish Sanhedrin. Now, the Bible record does reflect Pilate's intention to release Jesus, and then he almost did. But something had changed. Something made Pilate respond to the Jewish leaders, perhaps grudgingly, rather than treat them with his traditional disdain. Now, so what had changed? Well, this is what I've been able to research and figure out. So Janus is dead, even worse for Pilate, after the surprise execution in the fall of 31 AD, Tiberius Caesar now comes back into Rome and he begins to root out all of Sejanus' appointees and allies. Now, Pilate learned that many of them were, were, were executed, they were tortured, and anyway, in the uh, Davida Caesarium, Tiberius, uh, i got to read this here, Suetonius describes the treatment of Sejanus' allies with tortures unmentionable here. One of the milder descriptions from the Septuagint, at Capri they still point out the scene of his executions from which he used to order that those who had been condemned after long and exquisite tortures be cast headlong into the sea before his eyes, while a band of marines waited below for the bodies and broke their bones with boat hooks and oars to prevent any breath of life from remaining in them. Now, so. Executions were now to a stimulus to Tiberius' fury, and he ordered the death of all who were lying in prison under accusation from complicity with Sejanus. Now, this would have included Pilate. All right, I'm going back to read, read here from this book. There lay singly or in heaps the unnumbered dead of every age and sex. The illustrious with the obscure kinsfolks and friends were not allowed to be near them, to weep over them, or even to gaze upon them too long. Spies were set round them who noted the sorrow of each mourner and following the, followed the rotting corpses till they were dragged to the Tiber, where floating or driven on the bank, no one dared to burn or touch them. The force of terror had utterly extinguished the sense of human fellowship, and with the growth of cruelty, pity was thrust aside. That was written by a guy by the name of Tactus in his book called The Annals, Book 5. Now, Tiberius also issued countermands to Sejanus' orders and policies, including his anti-Semitic policies. Then now the new official line became, let the Jews alone. But this was not a casual change of direction, from what I've been able to determine. This new mandate arrived amidst the vigorous uh, extermination of many officials Okay, that Sejanus had put in place, people like Pilate. Now, from what we could determine, um, Pilate then ruled, if you want to call it like that, in, 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 a, in a very lethal or very deadly political context. Now, if Jesus' trial happened after this date of October 18th, when Sejanus was murdered or killed, or executed, I should say, October 1831 A.D., Pilate's strange ambivalence towards Jesus and Jewish leadership is not strange at all. At this moment in history, his prejudices would have cost him his life. So knowing this context, Okay, knowing now you know Pilate's onto something. Okay, uh, we can also understand why Pilate would genuinely dread the chant of those Jews who demanded Christ's execution. You know, John records in chapter 19. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, "If if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar's." Hey, uh, the Jews understood what was going on. Pilate understood what was going on. 
Now, so that death of, of, of oops, I dropped my paper here. <laughs> the death of Sejanus, okay, is significant. Now, so then it's starting to set the date then that, you know, he was killed again in A.D. 31, okay? So now April 33, that date is starting to, to rise higher and higher. Now, uh, now centuries before the birth of Christ, a young Jew was taken prisoner. You'll know this story. He was abducted from his whole land and all that he had known, and perhaps he went along stumbling, who knows, all that. His name was Daniel. This was taken in 605 B.C. Uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar overran, overran the, the, the tiny uh, state of Judah. Uh, he was king of Babylon, and Judah had taken the wrong side in a regional conflict, if you remember the story, between Egypt and Babylon, and paid the price. Now, to ensure its submission as a subjective state, you know, Many from Judah's royal and aristocratic families were carried away. Daniel was among these. Now, the Bible records uh, records that, that uh, or the Bible records indicate or, or records that Daniel was groomed for the service in Nebuchadnezzar's court. He learned the Babylonian uh, language, literature, customs, etc., etc. In time, he became a trusted advisor to the king. The Bible says that his true strength was in, in his faith and in the one true God, Yahweh, not in his personal ability. Now, through his successes, Daniel remained in the king's court, and his success was remarkable. And there's no indication that he ever returned to his homeland. Still, you know, as he must have had a desire to go there. Now, the Bible records his prayers, his heart cries, um, and the passion that he had. You know, Daniel pleaded with God for his people that their captivity might end and the temple be re rebuilt in Jerusalem. And Daniel chapter 9, the famous prayer, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the early vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. And as soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off. Now, the word Christ means anointed one, if you didn't know that. All right? For this and other reasons, uh, scholars really conclude that Daniel received a prediction, a prophecy of Messiah's coming. More than that, Daniel was also told the date of Messiah's death, the date that he would be cut off. Now, that's a date that, you know, that, that I believe we're on our way of finding and proving that literally tomorrow, April 3rd, is the date of the crucifixion. So can any type of numeric symbolism of Daniel 7 be deciphered? It's really not that complicated. Now, if we assume that, that sevens are seven years, Gabriel told Daniel that after the decree to rebuild, there would be seven sevens, which is 49, plus 62 sevens, which is 434. Well, say years. After these 483 years, that's the total, the Messiah, the Anointed One, would be cut off or killed. If this prophecy is true, this would be the year of the crucifixion. Now, here's where it gets a little confusing. 
So just bear with me here. I'm, I'm summarizing it in like one sentence, which, you know, I have about a whole chapter in one of my books that deals with it. In the ancient times, our modern calendar was not even thought of. In other prophetic passages, a year of 360 days is used. Now, that's what the Jews used because they, they used a lunar cycle, not a solar cycle. So to, 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 to begin the conversion process, to convert to our modern system, which uses a solar year, you have to divide the time it takes for the Earth to orbit the sun, which is 365.24 days. And this, when we convert it out, yields 476 years on our calendar. Now, okay, hopefully you remember that. If not, well, next time you see me at the mall, ask me and I'll explain it to you. Now, we, we now have a, a number of years, but when do we start? Well, Gabriel already gave the answer to that. Gabriel said to count from the issuing of the decree to restore the rebuild to, and rebuild Jerusalem. So when was that? Nehemiah tells us. Nehemiah records such a decree, and he dates it as the 20th year of Artaxerxes, or on our calendar date, that is 444 B.C. Now, counting 476 years from 444 B.C., and remembering that there's no zero, we discover when Gabriel told Daniel that Messiah would die in 33 A.D. Now, but there's, there, there's, there's a better clincher yet. And this is where we got to go back to, the, to our astronomer friends. Now, this prophecy was made 500 years before Jesus, our Lord and Savior, was born. It's consistent with all the other evidence, both biblical and non-biblical. So we have a buildup of, of good evidence suggest, proving that Jesus was crucified on April 3rd. But there's more. There's a clincher. And now you've got to go to Peter. Now, boy, I still got... I haven't even gone halfway through my notes yet. Um, oh, yeah, here I am. Now, we've got to get from the crucifixion to, you know, and add the last piece of evidence about the day of the cross. Now, the clue really is what Jesus is telling them, okay, after he, you know, he says this. The Bible reports that the resurrected Messiah, this is after he'd already died, you know, instructed his disciples not to leave Jerusalem until they received power. We know that's the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, I'm sure the apostles were confused, maybe even wondering what, it, what Jesus was talking about. Was it political power? Was it military power? Was it who knows what? Now, they were still there, you know, uh, in Jerusalem, 50 days after the Passover feast, after 50 days pretty much after the crucifixion, Jerusalem was, was full of worshipers. Now, we got in. you got to go back and you got to study, you know, the, the biblical feasts of, of God or the appointments of God. Pentecost be, kind of became the celebration of the giving of the law, but that's another story for another name. But it was one of those days where you, everyone had to be in Jerusalem. Remember, the men were required to be there three times a year. And so Jerusalem now is... is full of people from all over the, 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 the known world at that time, the Middle East. Now, the Bible reports, you know, uh, startling events during the celebration. You know, the sound of a great rushing wind. I love that thought. Something like flames hovering about the disciples. And just as strange, the disciples began to speak, not in their native Aramaic or Hebrew or Greek tongues, but they spoke in languages they had not learned. Okay. Yet these languages were understood by countless foreigners 
visitors to that day to the city. Um, now, Book of Acts, chapter two. Okay, Peter and the others being emboldened now by the Holy Spirit, they go outside, <clears throat> and and Peter gives us you know the, the the great evangelical speech of his day. I would imagine you know when when the apostles appeared in public, you know maybe for the first time in some time. Those that lived in Jerusalem that knew the apostles, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they're starting to gather around. Hey, where have you guys been? What's going on? Why? What's, what's all that noise? You know, maybe maybe there was even an afterglow of of the arrival of the Pente- uh, you know the tongues of fire on their head. So there had to be some type of pandemonium. Now the crowd, Peter begins to speak, and, he, and, and uh, there's some hecklers out there. Hey, you're all drunk. Um, but Peter jumped up and, and and said, "Listen, we're not drunk." He said. Well, this is what he said. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed to the crowd, fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen to me. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit. Thank God. On all people, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on those days, and they will prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming and great glorious days of the Lord. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So this is a classic double reference. It's hard to explain, but what Joel is prophesying is what we call a now and then. <clears throat> a now and then. So it, it, it's a prophecy that applies several times. Now, now, chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know now, if you happen to have a highlighter in your Bible handy, those last couple of words, as you yourself know, okay, or the whole whole ch- uh, verse, Acts 2.22, all right, those words are indeed powerful. So what Peter is saying, what he's telling to this crowd of at least 3,000, is that Joel's prophecy is being fulfilled, has been fulfilled, and that his listeners know it. They have seen the signs themselves. This is the same argument that Paul makes, as discussed, you know, uh, you know earlier. This argument would have had exactly no persuasive force unless Paul's and Peter's audiences knew that the signs had occurred. Do you hear that? I'll say that again. This claim, this statement by both Peter and Paul would be useless, meaningless, insignificant not even noteworthy unless the people, the audiences that Peter and Paul were spoke, spoke, yeah, spoken to, speaking to, knew it. They knew the signs. Both men assumed that everybody knew the signs. The signs in the heaven. That's powerful evidence that they had occurred. Now, now to me, and how we're going to tie all this together 
is Joel also said that there would be astronomical signs. And now Peter says, you've seen them. And Paul says, you've seen them. So what are they? The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Now the Gospels do recount, do say that a great darkness, okay, a great darkness came over the land. That the sun was darkened on the day of crucifixion from noon until three. Now, this is something I did not know until just actually just a, a short time ago when I was doing some research for this. Uh, a friend uh, recommended a, a non-biblical source, and I had to get online to, to track it down. Um, this, this is non-biblical, okay? Uh, Phlegon, P-H-L-E-G-O-N, Trailanius, T-R-A-L-L-I-N-U-S, He's some type of historian, and he has a, 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 a call it a book, Olympiades, and he writes this, in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad. Now, it's easy to do the math. This was 32-33 A.D. A failure of the sun took place greater than any previously known. And night came up on at the sixth hour of the day, which is noon, so that the stars actually appeared in the sky, and a great earthquake took place in Bithynia and overthrew a greater part of Nicaea. Huh. wonder where you've heard about that before. This was simply not a local astronomical event. This was seen throughout, you know, this, call it the uh, Roman Empire. But what about the bloody moon? Oh, this is this is this is where it really comes to life for me. Now, to answer that question about the bloody moon, it actually fixes the date of crucifixion with precision. Okay, now this is where you know you go back and, and you do the work, you use the math of, of Kepler. Okay, and then. You, you get the correct date of, you know, uh, the death of Herod, and you get the correct dates, you know, and, and, and the, you know, of uh, Pilate's reign and, and his change of policies, okay? But now, listen to this. Now, this is where the astronomical research, this is what, you know, uh, Rick Larson did, and I found it so amazing. In fact, the first time I watched uh, people who know me know that I wear my heart on my sleeve. When I first saw the Star of Bethlehem, uh, when I got to this part, uh, I, you know, I was in tears. And, and you know, I, I just wept because of what Jesus has done, what God has done. Now, beyond reasonable doubt in my mind, and because a blood moon has a specific meaning in ancient literature from what we can determine, not only the Bible, but it also means a lunar eclipse. Why bloody? Well, you know, you can Google it out. Because when the blood, uh, when the moon is in eclipse, it's in your shadow. It receives no direct light from the sun, but it still has a little dim light refracted on it, and it's light that is bent by passing through the Earth's atmosphere. It falls on the moon and gives it a reddish look. The moon in eclipse will glow a dull red. I have seen it many times in my life. Now this matters because with Kepler's equations, we can determine exactly when historical eclipses occurred. Now, here's 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 the here's what I've been working for for the last hour. 
Only one Passover was a lunar eclipse visible from Jerusalem while Pilate was in office. It occurred on April 3rd, 33 A.D. That day uh, followed a night, perhaps, of horrors predicted by the prophet Isaiah. In place of, of sleep for Jesus, there were torch-lit hours of interrogation and mockery, being spit in the face and beaten uh, with fists and rods and barbed lashes tearing flesh from his back, thorns pushed into his scalp. And Isaiah prophesied, and he wrote that the Messiah would be beaten until marred beyond human likeness. And so Jesus was brutalized during multiple trials and retrials before Annas and Caiaphas and Herod and even Pontius Pilate. In, in, in his end, his fate was decided by a mob. He was marched to Golgotha, a place called the Skull, where he was crucified, and he lived six hours on the cross. The Gospels tell us the chronology. You know, uh, we believe that the actual crucifixion began at approximately 9 o'clock in the morning. He was lifted up, not very high off the ground, and not very high up on a hill along a road. Study that out and find out for yourself. You know, at noon and for three hours, the sky was darkened. Okay, the sun didn't shine. In the temple, we know that only, you know, in Jerusalem, only priests were permitted once a year to obviously go in the presence of God. And we know that a thick curtain uh, hung and separated the Holy of Holies. And history suggests that this curtain could have been anywhere from three to four to maybe six inches thick. And we know it was torn. Uh, during the crucifixion, this veil, if you want to call it, was torn apart. Scripture tells us from top to bottom. As shattering earthquakes split rocks and broke open tombs, in the darkness and tumult of these signs, even the Roman guards regretted their part in the killing. Jesus died pretty close to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. There was a rush because it was preparation day. The Sabbath day was coming in a few hours. It could do no work. So he was removed from the cross before nightfall, before sundown, to preserve, to preserve what we would call the sanctity of Passover. But the signs and wonders did not end. Okay? And here's what I mean, and this proves the date. At approximately, and you need the software to see this, because we can run time forward and backwards so fast. But when the moon began to come up over the horizon that evening, it was already in a state of full eclipse. It was a blood moon. Now, can you imagine the wonder, the fright, perhaps the shame? that began to invade the hearts and minds uh, of the Jews, of the Romans, of Pilate, the Sanhedrin. When they saw this blood moon, oh, man, as, as the narrator of the film, Rick Larson, says, well, we're on the wrong side of this one. We can imagine only the wonder what went through their minds and their increasing dread as the signs kept coming. But there's more that they couldn't see, like I said. Kepler's equations you know, indicate that the moon uh, was already in a state of eclipse, already bloody, fulfilling Joel's vision. Uh, this means that the eclipse commenced before moonrise with software, like I said earlier, 
uh, you can see that the Earth's shadow begins the eclipse, and we find that it begins at 3 p.m., just as Jesus was breathing his last breaths on the cross. The moon was turning to blood. Now, the sky at Christ's birth. Now, I don't want to go that far back, but you have to go to Revelation 12. What John the Revelator saw was a double reference. He saw the sky at Jesus' birth, but the moon was only the tiniest sliver. You go to Revelation 12, read it. But now, if we look at the moon, because as, as the eclipse was occurring, it was under Virgo's feet, but now the moon is full, can only be eclipsed in a full moon. So when Jesus was conceived, when he was born, the moon under Virgo's feet was just a tiny sliver. Now it's full. God was telling us, you know, it was a life fully lived, blotted out in blood. So what does this all mean? King David said that the stars speak. Uh, I believe that. I, I believe in the celestial fanfare for the birth of the king. I believe in the celestial fanfare for the death of, of Messiah. I, I believe that the Bible says the stars carry messages from God on high. And if that's true, then behind any other message, the fundamental meaning of these events is that God is there. And he desires to meet with you. He desires that you be with him. And the stars were part of his communication. I've just jumped in my mind here, the Maseroth. If you want to study that, if you don't know what it is, very simply, God lays out his plan uh, of, of redemption for all of creation in the 12 constellations uh, that make up the Maseroth. Uh, when the Magi saw the signs, they responded as, as like Moses. They had to learn more. The Star of Bethlehem, if you ever watch that that DVD, it will draw you more. When you begin to understand now the date, of, the date of the crucifixion can be proven scientifically and historically. It should draw you more. What are you looking for? The complete message of Jesus Christ. His gospel message was that sins are forgiven by grace and faith in that grace. You can't earn your way back to God. You can't earn your way into, if you want to call heaven, you can't earn your way. Just because you're a Catholic, just because you're this, just because you're that, or because you have done this, you know, you don't ought to, you know, you, you go to heaven. It is by faith in the grace of God expressed as Jesus Christ on the cross that you are saved. All right? I believe in the one true God, as most Christians do. I'm not saying most, because there's some that don't. The, the Jews believe in the one true God, and, and there are countless other religious tra tra traditions you know, that, that also line themselves up with a creator God, and people are trying to find a way to him, and all along God has, has sent his son who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. My friend, the desire to find rest the desire to find peace is unquenchable. But God desired to have a relationship with us. And if, if so, then surely 
he also had to provide a way for us to come into relationship to overcome this problem of sin and, and, and the spiritual death that it brings. So the message of the star, the message of the cross, okay, is that he has provided Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, Jesus. Both the Old and New Testament clearly state that, that Jesus is Messiah, and he was willing to accept the punishment for sin in our place. And this is God's provision, his process, to heal the separation that Satan caused when he, allowed, when he, when he tricked man into sin to separate himself from God. Now, Isaiah 53, 6, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him, Messiah, the iniquity of us all. Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So the fuller message of the date of the cross, the evidence of the star of Bethlehem is good news. Christ, the Messiah, has come. The Messiah has paid the penalty for our sins. It is now possible to have a relationship with God that he desires. And in our innermost being, we also desire. You know, there's probably you know, been many times when you've thought about God and the possibility of knowing it. But thinking and doing are two different things. You know, a relationship will never happen unless you decide to act. Way back in the early 70s when, when, you know, for about a year or two, I was really kind of a wild, mixed-up man, young man. And then I met my wife-to-be, and I saw something in her that I greatly desired. And I had to act. I had to take the first steps to convince her, you know, that I was willing to change and, and to be a good person morally, spiritually, so that, you know, she would marry me. Now, Jesus said, listen, hey, I'm standing at the door, and I'm knocking. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. That's Revelation 3.20. Jesus Christ is inviting you into a relationship, but you must decide and act. If you accept this invitation, my friends, I tell you, Jesus promises to come in. He did with me way back in 75. If you feel God calling you into this relationship right now, you need to decide and act. And you can do this by simply asking God to forgive you. The exact words aren't important. God is looking at your heart. A simple prayer like this. God, I want to come into relationship with you. I know I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner in your eyes. And I'm sorry for my sins. Forgive me, God. Help me to grow. Help me to be the man, the woman that you want me to be. I thank you, God for forgiving me of my sins. I thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross. I thank you for raising him from the dead. Jesus, you took the punishment for my sin. Thank you. I invite you now to come into my life. Be my Lord. Teach me what I need to know. Send to me the Holy Spirit who will lead and guide me into all truth. Oh God, I give you the the right to work in my heart and to make me into the person that you want me to be. And I believe this to be true in Jesus' name. My friend, if you said that prayer or something like that, the Bible says that the angels in heaven are now rejoicing. But now, no man is an island. You cannot 
it, it's difficult to keep the faith, to keep the belief. My friend, you know, I, I hope that you prayed that prayer, but you need help. And here's what I suggest. You need to find a church in your area that is a true Bible-believing, God-loving, God-fearing church, a pastor that preaches the Bible from cover to cover, and, he, and, he, and he's not interpreting Scripture as he sees fit, but he is allowing Scripture to, to interpret Scripture. Now, that's important because there's a lot of denominations out there that just preach feel-good messages. I'm sorry. Jesus told it like it was. Now, if you happen to live in the Cumberland, Maryland area, I invite you to come and visit Tri-State Ministry Center. We're located just a few miles, about 10 or 11 miles north of Cumberland, Maryland. Uh, if you know where the Narrows is located in Cumberland, travel through the Narrows on your way to Mount Savage. Come down through Lower Vale, make a left at Blight, and head out towards Mount Savage. And, of course, you go past Motor City, and, and just a short distance, you're coming to the little town of Corriganville. Make a right there to Sheet Store. Stay on the road. Travel through Ellerslie. When you come to the end of the town, you will cross into the state of Pennsylvania. Tri-State Ministry Center, we're located about a quarter of a mile across the state line heading north on Pennsylvania Route 96. Okay, we're in the next building past Hobo's Restaurant. And our services start at 10 o'clock Sunday morning, 5 o'clock prayer service Sunday night, 6 o'clock for evening service, uh, Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. And for those of you who don't mind coming to church an hour early, uh, adult Sunday school, you can bring your kids if you want, I don't care. Uh, with me, yours truly, John Glencoe, on Sunday morning starting at 9 doing a current teaching now about heaven. I've done several ones before, but this one's a little different. And i uh, love to see you, love to meet you. Come in and say you, you heard me on Blog Talk Radio. And it's April 2nd, Preparation Day, really, many years ago. Jesus ate his last meal with his apostles. He gave us the sacrament of communion this night, and I'm thankful for that. My friends, it's time for me to go, and I pray that you will give your life to Jesus Christ, because when you do, that is true worship, and now is the time to worship. Tom Blanton, something to think about this. Oh, now is the time.